So, yeah, it's been a minute since listeners have probably heard my voice. I missed a few recordings uh, with some taking care of some things on my own uh, at home uh, and work. But uh, now I'm back after the holidays, and I want to tell you boys a fun little story that happened uh, during Christmas. It was with uh, my partner visiting their family uh, for Christmas. And lo and behold, one of their relatives uh, works for Microsoft. And uh, guess what? Guess what department in Microsoft they work in? Just take a wild guess. Our favorite one. I mean, it's it's got to be oh, the yeah, AI. Oh yeah, you know, it's AI. It's you know. <laughs> mhm. 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 So he was he was at dinner, and he was you know he was talking about how machine learning is going to change lives and. You know, how these wealthy people are going to have to, like, rely on people to do mundane tasks for them that, you know, computers will do it for them. Uh, and, you know, largely with the education I've learned from the show, pestered him so much that he, every time I walked up to join the conversation, would just duck out mid, mid-word and leave because he just could not be faced with the questions I kept asking him. Because um, his favorite thing to talk about was is how much AI is going to uh, prevent climate destruction. It's the most fucking backwards-ass fucking lib brain thing I've ever heard that AI is going to figure out how to solve a climate crisis. And I'm like, my brother in Christ, just running the computer models is going to increase the climate crisis. How are you going to offset that carbon footprint? Well, no, we haven't gotten to that stage of the of the conversation yet, <laughs> man. Why we're we're at the question mark stage? You know, it's like question mark, question mark. We're at that stage right now. It's kind of unfair of you to to ask me to fill in the blanks of these question marks. We're trying. We're we're trying to do that. <laughs> I just keep thinking of you as like like the goose chase meme, where it's just like, mm-hmm. how's AI going to solve climate change, Brad? Brad, how's it going to solve climate change? <laughs> just, just chasing him around. That's uh, it's it's always a fucking um uh so it, it, it can be a real coin flip of like do you reveal yourself or not? You know when you're in those kinds of situations and you have someone who's like, yeah, I work, yo, you yeah, you're at like a Christmas dinner, someone, your partner's relative. They work with they work at Microsoft um, on with the AI team, and they start talking, and it's just like it's like all right, they they don't know who I am. Do do I do I take do I step into the ring or not? You know, do I do I come down from the audience, start playing my music? What the fuck is that the TMK theme song I hear playing? (laughs) You always got to ask yourself, like, is it worth it? Do I, or, or, or alternatively, am I feeling frisky? (laughs) I mean, I was feeling frisky. I mean, I let him fucking just string himself out there and then, but I had my mask off moment and he realized who I, what I was for I was. And after that, he wanted no part of the conversation. He just, like you said, he's the person running away from the goose and that goose meme. Um, <laughs> I mean, I really, I wasn't like, I'm a Luddite. I don't think AI should ever exist. Like, I didn't, I didn't let him know to the extremes of how much I hated what he does. But, uh, you know, I let him know, like, some of us aren't stupid. Also, he didn't like when I asked him what Sam Altman named his uh, AI girlfriend. 
he really didn't like that question. Because <laughs> rumor, rumor has it it's Melinda, and nobody will uh, confirm or deny. <laughs> All right, look, bro, you're just trolling me now. I, if we're gonna have a serious conversation, <laughs> let's have a serious conversation about it. You just, bro, you're just not taking this seriously. <laughs> this, this concept has been around for so long that it got fucking scuttled because it went nowhere. And then you guys are gonna just throw all this capital at this again because tech has to find the next best thing. And this is just going to be, you know, hopefully it's going to be like NFTs and fucking Web3 bullshit with blockchain and everything else again, but who knows? It'll never fucking end. The same people who are responsible for the last scams will always tell us that the next scam is different. That's right. It's But it's different in like these really key ways that, you know, it's this time it's going to work. This time we figured out the question marks. Um, it's, it's, it's called it's called iter- it's called a uh, iteration. You know, you got you got to have iteration for innovation. That that's that's what's up. <laughs> At this point, right now, I'm like I, you know, I feel like I, you know, politics aside, I feel like I really identify. I tend to have this identification with with anarchism, and it's you know mostly because I haven't seen a government really do anything good for its people. So like, you kind of lose faith in that. And you know, because of that, I'm like, you know what? Fuck rules. I don't, you know, if a rule's stupid, I don't care but also at the same time like i took this hard turn where i feel like george carlin when george carlin said that people that do financial crimes regardless of what they are should fucking get the death penalty like that's the only time i feel like the uh, government should step in and kill its citizens (laughs) 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 well we are we are prison abolitionist here um but 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 there, but there does have to be some punishment <laughs> meted out occasionally to the right people. Um, but I hope this did. I hope it did not ruin your holidays um, having Christmas dinner with someone that works for Microsoft. I mean, it's one, it, one. It's inevitable for you, Jeremy, living in the Pacific Northwest, living in Washington State. Uh, these people are around you um, constantly. You know, they, they, they. They might not show their face. You might not know it. You might not be able to pick them out, but you probably can pick them out. They're around you all the time, Jeremy. It's, it's inevitable that one would find one would find their way into your Christmas dinner. Give him a nice, some nice TMK gear that he can wear at the office. I should have put a, a the Luddites were right sticker on his Audi. Oh, he would have. Lo- <laughs> he would have loved that. He would have loved that. Uh, just slap one on there. And pull into Microsoft this morning. Hey, uh, did you get a new sticker on your car there, Brad? Mm. No, no, why? <laughs> what does it say? It's like, the, the Ludites were right? Oh, fuck Ludites. that asshole. <laughs> yeah. I've been vandalized. <laughs> no. Call the cops. <laughs> Damn you, TMK! Just a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Beats all you never saw, been in trouble with the law since the day they was born.
Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 307 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And it is, it is our, our first record back from a little break we took. First record back in a, in a new year in 2024. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been enjoying my break. I know, I hope you all have been too. You know, I, I've been... I've been putting a lot of time into my into my real career, gaming. <laughs> oh, yeah. I started playing a new game uh, the day after Christmas, and I I checked my time on on the game um, like yesterday, so about five days, five six days uh, you know, later, and almost 60 hours into this game i i i, I don't i man <laughs> if i could devote that much time to work the 12 hours a day <laughs> just 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 dead focus 12 hours a day not feeling uh, degenerated by it or depleted by it but but energized uh all, just in it man I, i'd be I, i'd be unstoppable i'd be i'd be cranking out so much stuff but it, i you know it's my real career is in gaming, R- RPGs in particular. I started playing this um, new Warhammer game. My first, fin- my first venture into the Warhammer lore. Uh, everything I know is just through like kind of you know cultural osmosis. Um, but uh, this Warhammer Rogue Trader, it's it's, it's a CRPG like Baldur's Gate, um, same kind of style of game. Fucking good. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Uh, and I still got some more time off of work uh, until next. I'm I'm off work until next Monday, so I think I got oh, yeah, another brother. sixty hours in my future <laughs> for this. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, we should do some Baldur's Gate, man, because I know the time zones are tricky. But I love that game. You love that game, Jeremy. I'm sure you'd love that game also. Man, I put if like 150 it. hours into Baldur's Gate three. If I had free time to play video games that would be the best but i honestly i haven't touched a video game probably since we started doing this podcast that's been the last time i really sat down and played a video game like at earnest also all my computing power goes to making music and i don't have any new consoles i I have an old (laughs) xbox but i download all of my television shows and put them on a thumb drive and use my Xbox VLC player to play. Hell yeah, brother. So I can see the subtitles. Hell That's yeah, as you should. That's the way God intended. We should be pirating everything, you know? Make a, make a, make a Plex uh, group with your friends and show them that you care about them by downloading all their favorite shows as a little treat. Yeah, man. And force right. people to work within the, app, the Apple uh, uh, ecosystem. I'll just create a giant iCloud account and give people passwords and we can store everything there and you can grab it as you need it. That's great. Well, I, I it is it is sometimes it's this is this is often surprising how how many hours I put into games. Um, but as with everything that I do, it's really about consistency. You know, when people are like, "Jathan, how do you write so much? You must write so fast." Like, no, I I don't. I just write consistently. I just write often. Think about Roger Ebert's advice because Roger Ebert, movie reviewer who's also famous for being hyper prolific. And I remember in an interview asked that he was asked, like, how do you write so fast? You know, you're, you got the, you got the fastest keyboard in town. He said, I don't write 
faster than anybody else. I just spend less time not writing than everybody else. I took that to heart. You just write, I just write a little bit every day and that starts adding up really quickly. Same with video games. <laughs> just mm. other mm. than these binge sessions for like, you know, the holidays right now, which is pretty rare. Um, just a, ga- a little bit of gaming every single day, an hour here, an hour there starts adding up real fast. <laughs> uh, um, and then of course, you know, some, some, some good sessions on the weekends, like on Sunday, get in a few hours, really make up for lost time during the week, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe, maybe open AI could, uh, you know, grease our wheels a little bit. If they made a really good AI, choose your own adventure, a chat GBT thing. I know there's a text-based one, but it sucks. It's basically just you're playing with um with uh chat GPT, you know, uh with a data set that's structured along like a dungeon crawler. Give me let's give me some tools to make a video game, and then maybe I'll say like one nice thing about them. Two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's it's all about acquisition, right? You got give give me the tools to make a video game so I can then get aqua hired by Activision. Or, oh yeah, or, yeah. Or, <laughs> or epic. <laughs> of course. Um, I, I mean, all right. Well, let's let's get into it. So, speaking of video games, the to kick off the new year, we decided to do a Q and A episode. We haven't done one in a really fucking long time. We we did one like. You know, we did a couple of them like really early in the podcast, which I mean is over three years ago that we started TMK, which is just wild to me. But like very early, like in the first year, we did a couple and we were like, oh, we're going to do like Q&A episodes pretty regularly. And then we just never did it. And so, but I decided, you know, kick off the new year with with a Q&A episode, maybe, maybe uh, a part one for the free and a part two for the premium because we got a lot of really fucking great questions uh, from the people in the TMK Discord, which is where we put out the call for questions. Um, and so all our, our, our Discord, you know, very active, such a great community over there. And many of the 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 regulars and the stalwarts and the discord really came through um with some some excellent questions for us and so might have to do these a bit more regularly because it's it is very fun to also just see like what are people interested in what are people wanting us to be interested in or talk about um and so i i say speaking of video games as my segue because there were uh a few questions specifically focused on the the kind of the economics of the video game industry, which is something that we we've talked about a little bit, uh, like like you know a year ago, a couple years ago, when we did an episode on Axie Infinity, the the blockchain NFT video games, the crypto games that were just like, I mean. If you think the like the the freemium games on like mobile apps or like Fortnite or whatever, if you think those are exploitative with their loot boxes and their pay to win and 
and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, in, in the episode we did, based on a lot of reporting that you were doing at Vice Motherboard back when that was, and uh, you know, back when you were working there, Ed, the episode we did on Axie Infinity just shows that, like, of course they took those logics like crypto does and just blew them out, like intensified it so much more in terms of the, like the hyper extractive, exploitative, colonialist, imperialist um, nature of, of these games. Um, so I, I will direct people to that, but but I, there is so much more going on in the video game industry and the few the, the 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 like the cluster of questions that we got from people in the discord asking us you know like uh minstrel asks when are you doing an episode about the predatory nature of the mobile gaming slash video gaming industry um you know uh see hig to ask us you know for takes on the google play store antitrust trial uh you know and Sh- uh shamil ask us you know does the seemingly soon to arrive crash in the AAA video game industry as evidenced by falling profits from increasingly massive investments in giant titles provide any insight into the broader tech industry i mean i think all of these are really great questions i th- we we let's touch on them now but also just to put a pin in it and say Let's do an episode. We need to do an episode on the video game industry, probably multiple episodes, especially considering how much like, uh, you know, well, Jeremy says he doesn't have time to play games. But um, I do know that, you know, Jeremy, you know, I, I, I play games all the time. It's like one of my main hobbies. I know, Ed, you also play games all the time. I also know that Jeremy loves video games, but just doesn't have time to play right now. Um, and, and in fact, one of the main reasons I play video games so much is because my dad is a super avid RPG gamer, has been playing RPG games since the, the 80s um, on computer, moved over from playing D&D games in like the 70s and 80s, uh, like tabletop D&D, um, and, has, and so I grew up with every rpg game for compute for pc or consoles like available to me but only after my dad had beat them first you know but it was like i grew up in a household of video games of gamers and that being like the main kind of hobby and entertainment is playing video games whether it's watching my dad play games or me playing games and i will say i don't know if you know this jeremy but the thing that got my dad into playing video games and that made me into a gamer was you because you had like Mario on the uh, on the Nintendo, like the original NES. Mm-hmm. And when my when my dad was dating our mom, he would come over and play your like play your Nintendo and was like, this fucking rocks. And then from there, he just got super into gaming. <laughs> Yeah, he bought a he bought a Sega Genesis the first day it came out and got this uh, little kit so you can retro play the old Sega games on it because the original Sega had an RPG on it that was probably one of my favorite ones until like the mid mid nineties when there was like Breath of Fire and Earthbound and uh, you know uh xenogears of course I think that's like a big counterpoint mm-hmm. with all of us on this podcast mm-hmm. I mean it's on our fucking TMK logo. Um, I was just wearing my Xenogear shirt yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so like video games, you know, video games and gaming in certain sense, because 
I think, you know, there was a lot of kids in the eighties whose parents wouldn't let them play D and D because they thought it was satanic or whatever. And meanwhile, I'm playing D and D as a kid and having it taught to me by Jason's dad, you know, well, because they needed another person around out sessions. And I was, I was curious and that, that was honestly my gateway. Like my gateway, if I had the time, I would probably do tabletop gaming, um, more so than Mm. video games. Um, you know, I, I used to, this is, and I'm going to let my nerd flag show a little bit and I don't care, but there's a, there's a, a gaming company, um, called white, uh, white wolf that put out a series in the nineties called the world of darkness. So it's like vampire, the masquerade where, uh, werewolf, the apocalypse, just like all the classic horror movie tropes, you know, but in a world where vampires exist or a world where werewolves exist, basically the movie underworld kind of just cribbed that whole idea of that movie from this like tabletop gaming aspect. But I've, you know, I've done that for the past 20 years and have been trying to get one going, but everybody's all over the country and it's just not easy to do through zoom. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. I mentioned it, but the, the game that I've been putting 60 hours into during the, uh, the, the holidays is a, is the uh, new Warhammer 40 K game called rogue trader, which is like, which is a CRPG like Baldur's Gate. And it's really my first foray into um, into Warhammer. Like I know some of the lore just through like cultural osmosis, um, but mm. I've never actually like gotten into it because it is so so wild and so weird and so so in depth and people care way too much about it and shit. But um uh shout out to to Riley over at Trash Future who I know is a Warhammer guy. Uh but this game fucking rocks. <laughs> it is very it is like it is like a a less refined but more uh technical um sci-fi version of Baldur's Gate in terms of like gameplay and style. But um yeah, but I know okay. Ed, you also like gaming is massive for you. I mean, we often are playing the same game um, at the same time, even if we're not doing it together because of the time zone difference. Yeah, no, you know, and I and I've been thinking about this, especially with the gaming industry, because it's like there are a lot of games, right? Um, and it's been interesting to see some of the ways in which various segments of the industry have developed, like the emergence and the rise of these idle games the ascension of um, or the attempts to evolve and, and diversify how uh, these microtransacting games develop attempts to integrate games into daily activities, crypto assets, backing some of these games, um, you know, I th- and, and also attempts to develop games, you know, and idle games and crypto asset daily activity games are also fall into this category, but games where in one way or another, there's a much more reliable, uh, return and use time, um, because you're grinding out as a core mechanic, um, or because of, uh, using microtransactions to pay to play, um, so that you can generate revenue, so that you can generate uh, revenue from transactions and also from advertiser revenue and also from whatever weird asset that you might have on the back end as well, if you're doing it too, right? Um, you know, and so I, and to that first question about the exploitive nature, I mean, yeah, that's definitely something that we can look into. You know, I've been following on my own time uh, China's uh, forays into this. And I know, you know, we've done a few episodes kind of doing deep dives into various elements of China's tech industry and ecosystem. 
And I think gaming is a very interesting one that we can probably do because China's, you know, there are some things that make sense why a country would want to do them, especially if it's a country that's trying to like, you know, that has a different sense of what techno- technology should be, you know, how it should be developed and deployed in their society, right? I mean, um, admittedly, in the United States, technology is kind of just allowed to proliferate to the end of profit, right? And innovation and socially beneficial outcomes or socially desirable outcomes, not necessarily good or bad, but the ones that maybe a state or a group of people might advocate for are secondary, tertiary, right? You know, in China, there have been moves to institute specific limits on, uh, you know, types of games that are accessible to children, when children can play them, what kind of transactions can go on with them, uh, what types of business models are allowed to happen um, that are interesting and have their own drawbacks and benefits as well, but are something to look at that we probably could, right? Because at the end of the day, you have something that's really interesting, right? Which is like, you know, how can I just like play maybe as a form of escapism, maybe as a form of social activity, but in one way or another, how can I play a game? And there are a variety of types of games. Maybe I want to do an adventure. Maybe I want to do a character collection game. Maybe I want to do a sort of building game. Maybe I want to do a role play game, right? Um, but this like rot that has been developing, right? When trying to squeeze more blood from the stone, by integrating as many opportunities for 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 cash to be scalped have led to them like honing in on you know some of the most odious design elements of digital applications and products and services right i mean uh maybe one thing that we can definitely look at you know in future episodes We've talked about this a little bit, like when we talked about uh, Robin Hood, right? But is the way in which these games are designed to uh, replicate gambling, right? But also in the ways in which gambling digital design is meant to replicate uh, elements of prison design, right? Um, you know, these are these are things that are increasingly being designed to isolate, except in very specific funnels. Uh, to encourage and to associate pleasure with only the thing in the moment, to get people into flow states, and of course to open wallets, right? And there are a lot of strategies you can do to get people to open wallets so they're no longer free to play, but pay to play, pay to win, or so on and so forth, right? Um, and there's you know a huge amount of a you know even though I regard it as a pseudoscience, you know behavioral, you know a lot of the behavioral psychology and behavioral economics stuff, right? Uh, if something something can be a pseudoscience or something can be like you know bullshit, as we talked about, for example, that episode uh, on Gideon uh, Levi Strauss's um, Louis Strauss's um, article about the behavioral economics uh, economics professors who fabricated their work and data, but nonetheless, because they fabricated it, because they had results that were politically convenient, um, it became uh, integral to designing policy, right? enforcing certain outcomes that may not have even been happened or lied about if these uh if the data had been honest from the first place right and i think similarly with video games right the explorative elements a lot of them flourish because there's not sanitizing light except in the labor conditions and except when like you start to get you know frankly sometimes moral panics about like children buying um, things with their parents' care- credit cards, right? And, and, or with the gamification or the gamblification of them. But we don't talk about like the larger turn and the larger adoption in the design philosophies that have just kind of normalized 
gambling uh, design, which is influenced again by prison design, which again, in of itself is like, you know, as I think Chris Hedges has written really well about this, right? All of this comes in one way or another out of the sort of despair in the culture that's pushed and commodified onto people, you know? Um, and I think uh, something that's interesting, something I definitely, you know, maybe I might try to write about is, you know, why, why do we, why do we handle it one way? Whereas other countries handle it another way, you know, what parts of the exploitive video game industry do we see as a problem? Um, and what do we not? And I think a huge chunk of what we don't regard as a problem, even though we kind of like have these panics about it is that design, right? Is that flow state design is the gambling, gambling design is the, you know, the uh, dopamine seeking uh, design, right? Which is hard to also talk about because then there's, understandably a backlash to it right where it's like well you know games are fun you know you can have these designs and still have pretty rewarding games or pretty fun escapes right and that's true you know i'm sure some of my favorite games are games that you know very plainly are just vessels for you to open up your wallet and pour money into uh, but you know, as we talk, as we talked about with other things, if we're interested in like exploring alternatives and much more and just other creative alternatives or other possibilities for what games, you know, might look like or could be uh, that don't re- go down this route, it also requires being like, you know, hey, uh, games are cool, but they also fucking suck in that in that sense, right? They're disappointing in some fundamental way. Um, I think about this a lot with like open world games. You know, I love open world games. I think open world games are probably some of my favorite genres, especially when you have a world that kind of reacts to you. But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of them are empty in a, in a kind of gameplay fundamental sense. And, you know, we kind of like mod and we understand that in one way or another, we understand, okay, you're only really going to get a lot of the activity clustered around storylines that are clustered around population centers. And then you have some side quests that are outside and maybe the, maybe there are treasures and the stuff that the further away you get from the city, the more it's like, you know, fetch this quest or find this quest or clear out this den quest. Right. Uh, and so some of it is design, some of it is resource, some of it is philosophy of it. Um, but I think of that as an example of something where it's like, you know, the criticism of the thing can still be like, it's fine, it's great, but also like what I would have wanted if I just came into this world, newborn, Rawls Vale, looking at the video game industry, um, it'd be a little bit more. And it can't be more because of uh, because of the larger socioeconomic system it's plugged into, right? Because it has to follow a business model of a company that turns out a certain amount of AAA games that are supposed to have a certain uh, amount of revenue returned to them that are also supposed to get people to buy the console at a certain rate and supposed to come if they don't already, um, or either supposed to come with a DLC or achieve a certain amount of sales without the DLC that are supposed to then, you know, turn out into franchises or maybe an online experience with cosmetic elements that are, you know, transactable and so on and so forth. Right. There's a whole, there's a whole model, which kind of limits um, us getting fanciful and, and, and like dreaming up some blue sky open world thing. But I think, you know, a lot of the disappointment kind of, yeah, just stems back to like, people don't really, uh, some people are excited about games and designing them. And also there's a lot of people who like are solving a problem. And the problem is like how to get users on the screen 5% more of the time, you know, how to get them to spend 4% more money, um, how to get, you know, uh, this many or that many, you know, metrics hit. Um, and that'd be probably, that'd be an interesting episode to talk about because, you know, to loop it back to the end, at the end of my, you know, rambling 
on, on this is that, um, you know, what we have that system because, you know, there's a mix of the uh, government handholding and pretense of market competition and, and some market competition in this country, especially in the game industry, you know, but the China and, you know, to some extent, maybe Europe, but China has a pretty divergent set of like priorities in that, you know, it's still, it's still capitalist in some pretty key elements, right? But because the state comes in and because the markets are dominated in a lot of cases by these state-owned enterprises, because the state has a close hand and has actual regulatory ability to come in and crack down and change business models and make them illegal or disincentivize development towards even certain passage of innovation. You know, it is interesting, like, okay, well, in a country like that, what types of gaming are no longer going to be tolerated or going to be weeded out or what types of gaming that we might regard as like problematic are still going to persist and why, and what can that tell us about like capitalist, you know, modes of governance and also like attempts to like say that it's not a capitalist mode of government governance, but still adhering to this or that form. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much here. I like, there's a whole, there's definitely easily a whole series for us to do. And I think it is something worth doing um, because it is so rich and it is such a fucking huge industry now too. I mean, the, the video game industry far outpaces the movie industry in terms of like its economic, in terms of its dollar size, uh, in terms of its reach, uh, in terms of the like the amount of time that people put into games, right? Like, um, and gaming, like it, it far outpaces by every metric, but it's only recently that it's been taken seriously in that way. And it's only been taken seriously, um, as like a cultural product, even though there's still the interminable debate. And I don't really fucking care about like if video games are art or not. I mean, like it's an important, it maybe is an important debate, but honestly, I don't really care about, the- about that debate. Um, but I think that, that like what's more telling is that like, it became it's become a huge cultural product once it became a huge profit center a profit engine right like um once these games were making built like you know gta 5 has made billions of dollars right like one you know that's one game alone you know once uh, uh, perhaps i mean i haven't looked in a while but i remember seeing something that gta 5 is one of the most profitable like uh entertainment products uh, in history you know uh because of uh, because of the amount of money that it has made through it's like you know still very uh popular online gaming and 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 all of that and so once it's become once it becomes this like extremely profitable commodity then you start getting things like uh it becomes taken seriously uh in large part because it becomes the focus of massive investment uh and massive you know uh and with that investment comes a lot of the like the cultural industry right the marketing the pr the advertising like everything that kind of creates our cultural perception of video games um it's why you know microsoft one wants to buy activision for 70 billion dollars you know it looks like they're you know they're going to um you know it's been on you know it's it's been under these different regulatory reviews for a very long time. The UK Competition Authority stopped the deal 
um, and then Microsoft restructured the deal. Um, and now, and then the U- last I saw the UK um, CMA, the Competition Market Authority, approved the restructured deal. So you know, Microsoft's probably going to buy. You know, Microsoft's going to buy Activision. I think I think it has passed. I, I have to look. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure like it is going through. But so there's seventy billion dollars, and then on the flip side, you've got the uh, the recent decision um, in the Epic, who makes Fortnite, Epic versus Google, um, the you know uh, lawsuit. In California, where Epic sued Google for its monopolistic control and uh, over the Google Play, right? Like, you know, Google was uh, had a monopoly on, and, and specifically, this was about payment processing and transactions. You know, Google was taking thirty percent of the transactions um, that were occurring in a game in like in Fortnite um, among you know and everywhere else. But Fortnite is the one that brought a, a law, or Epic is the one that brought a lawsuit about it, and they've brought a similar lawsuit against Apple um, for the same exact thing. But they lost their lawsuit against Apple while they won their lawsuit against Google and. Google is going to have to pay seven hundred million dollars um, in uh, to settle this antitrust lawsuit over their app store, uh, as well as uh, relinquish their control over um, payment processing in the app store to allow third parties and others. And you know, all of this is f- the reason why. Uh, Epic won their lawsuit against Google and lost it against Apple is because Google claims that their app store is open source. Well, whereas Apple has always claimed that the closed wall, that the walled garden um, uh, platform, that that their uh, their app store has always been a walled garden, and that's a essential selling point for customers. That it's you know that you get the the app the Apple curation and and oversight, um, and so they lost their loss. Uh, Epic lost their lawsuit against Apple on those grounds, saying, "Well, Apple never claimed that." you know, they weren't a monopoly, you know, you, 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 they own the platform and that's a selling point for them. Whereas Google claimed that they were open source, but they were acting like a monopoly. But all of this is interesting as well, because it also speaks to what you were saying about these like different approaches. This antitrust lawsuit um, is ultimately about the app store, but, but, but really it's about gaming. It's about transact. It's about game transactions, um, which is where most, which is where all of these companies make all of their money, not in the sell of the game. They often the selling the game is a, it can be a loss leader to get, or if, or, or it's even a free game, you know, a lot of these like, like Fortnite and so on are free because, so total loss leader to get you in the game because you're going to pay multiple times more uh, than the than you than it would take to buy the game um, at retail for in-game purchases, and so this lawsuit is about you know about the about who's skimming, uh, who's getting their take on the money uh, that that happens in these transactions, and I think it speaks to your point as well at around like all different approaches to this regulation of gaming where here this really big antitrust lawsuit is all about consumer choice and market competition that's how it's always been framed it's about no you have to give the uh you have to you know consumers need to have a choice in payment processors 
what I mean, what 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 does a consumer care about whether it's app like their payment is being processed by Google or being processed by Epic or being processed by Stripe? Like, uh, you know, like what does a consumer actually care about that? It's a really weird way to frame that, like. We're doing antitrust about consumers. Well, on the other hand, all of the regulatory review for the Microsoft Activision, um, you know, eventually the deal gets restructured in such a way that it gets through regulatory review. So then you have like that hyper concentration there while you have uh, competition in terms of payment processors, right? Like it's such a bizarre kind of way of understanding what the political economy of this system is, where it, it is, it shows the poverty of trying to regulate an industry based on these kinds of, of blunt tools like consumer welfare or consumer choice um, and not about like the structural power or about this idea of like, no, consumers need to have a choice about like what they pick off of the menu, but they don't have a choice about what's put on the menu, right? Uh, about how the menu is, is structured, about the parameters um, that that govern the menu, right? But but you get a choice about the menu. You know, you can have the cheeseburger or the 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 hamburger. You know, one's got cheese. That's an option. That's choice. You know, <laughs> like. It, 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 I think it, um, it really speaks to what you were saying, Ed, that like there's such a deeper story here about like, like how are video games, how is the video game industry being um, structured around a specific set of business models and parameters, you know? And it's like the same old story that we see all over the place and that we talk about in so many different kind of areas uh, about like, in other words, what we have a, uh, we have a video, we have a capitalist video game industry, you know, the video games that we see are capitalist video games in the sense that like their business models are oriented around the exact things that you, the parameters and the goals that you were talking about around, you know, maximizing, uh, time on screen, maximizing um, transactions as a way to, uh, you know, um, you know, pro you know, maximize profit and continual flow of revenue. Also, on the back end, maximizing labor exploitation, cutting corners, minimizing resources put into the games. You know, like there's a whole there's there's so much going on here that I think people are increasingly more and more aware of like the crunch of the games, although they might only be aware of it because they're like, Oh, like cyberpunk 2077 was put out and it was such a piece of crap, you know, because they, it was like, they were crunching on it and they were rushing it. But like, that's a labor story, right? As much as it is an, a story about anything else. Um, it, it's an investment story. It's about like, Max, you know, minimize the investment to maximize the returns. It mirrors completely the movie industry, where because of the SAG and WGA strikes, I think it's a lot more in people's conscious about like how labor actually works in those industries. It's the same, and how hyper consolidated the studio system is, um, and how uh, you know over in terms of like who's making and producing movies. 
Um, where's capital, right? The hyper concentration of capital and their their ability to act as a cartel, um, you know, a, a legally sanctioned cartel at the negotiation table with the unions. Um, it's the same thing that we see happening with the video game industry, except video game industry is not unionized, you know? So it's even worse uh, than, than the, at least the actors and the writers uh, have the benefit of unionization. Without that, they would be squeezed they, more so than they already are. It would, be so, it would be more horrific, more exploitative than it already is. Uh, and, and that's what we see in the video game industry. It's, this, it's, a, it's a very analogous um, kind of structure of an industry, but because video games are so much younger, because it's taken less seriously by the public, I think, because it's like, it was also because it was coming out of a kind of culture of like tech work um, rather than like creative work. Uh, I think a lot of um, that has kind of made it resistant to or uh, unionizing on one hand, where uh, but also uh, resistant in terms of like um, the the workers themselves not you know being resistant for a while to unionizing, then wanting to unionize, um, but then having these uh, these industries crushing that at every way that they possibly could. So I, I mean, there's just so much here. Like we're we're. We are doing an episode on video games on accident, and I'm gonna—I'm just gonna put a pin in it because we need a whole series on it. Um, clearly, there's so much more for us to get into. Um, a lot of people to talk to about this as well to cover different mm-hmm. angles. So, I don't know. Look for that in the new year. I, I yeah, I, I, at some point in the new year, look for a series on video games from TMK. I mean, just to wrap that up, uh, the syllabus, you know. Um, uh, which which we you know uh, friend of the show Evgeny Morozov's um, the syllabus just released yesterday as of recording a holiday edition of the syllabus on gaming <laughs> a whole list of resources about gaming which I just thinks that like it shows that there's like a lot in the zeitgeist right now around like understanding gaming in a very like critical way understanding gaming in terms of the the political economy of it um and all of that right and so there's there's a lot more for us and i and i already have a number of names uh buzzing around in my head of people who would be perfect to talk to um about these various aspects but Let's let's get on to some other questions. I mean, in classic TMK fashion, we are forty five minutes into the episode, uh, and we <laughs> we we talked about something that I was like, "Let me address these questions as a way to say we will not talk about them now." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, all right, let's let's get into some other questions, and I we will absolutely, I think. Um, keep this going with a part two in the premium episode um, for this week because there's just so much more for us to get into. But um, hard-hitting question from Ali in the Discord. Uh, if war broke out between America and Satan, who would you stand with? Um, Ed, I'm, I'll throw it to you. Who do you stand with, America or Satan? Are we talking which Satan are we talking about? You know, are we talking about Lucifer? Are we talking about Satan? I'm sorry. Um, we gotta specify your demons, bro. 
I'm sorry, chat. I, I, I think this is a trick question at, uh, because um, they are they America are the same. It's a great Satan. <laughs> America. I uh, I reject the premise. Um, exactly. I reject the premise. I don't have to choose between uh, America or Satan. I choose God. Okay. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I choose the light of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the blood of the Lamb, the King of Kings, <laughs> the Prince of Peace. Trick question. Like I a- stand with neither because uh, standing with one is standing with the other. They are the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't, and we can't do that here at TMK. Man, I can't believe we answered that question. The bird that flies at midnight asks uh, uh, a few different questions, but I'll get into. But the first one is: What is your favorite writing implement? Um, so less less topic and more method. What what how what how do you write, Ed? What do you, what's your favorite writing implement? What what's your writing routine? Maybe I don't think I ever talk about this, but I write a lot of stuff in on paper. Um, I would say it's shifted over the years. Because having it on computer allows me to avoid losing it. Um, but as I've sent- <laughs> as I've centralized things into journals more consistently over the years, and uh, gotten on Adderall, I've uh, been able to uh, find it easier to not lose every single thing that I have. And um, a good deal I write on paper, but I find. So I write a lot of things on paper because on paper, it is easier to be a little bit more spontaneous. You can write, for example, if I'm writing a story and I want to outline it, um, you know, I can write words in any part of the page and that in of itself can be a sort of creative spark, right? I can draw diagrams pretty quickly. I can uh, do weird esoteric symbols that mean something to me, but not maybe necessarily are, you know, thing, a thing a computer could make. And so a lot of those sort of creative things I write on paper. And I also like to take things that I've typed and put them on paper because sometimes the act of writing them down is um, spurs something much like the way reading something aloud um, spurs things for me, right? Because reading things aloud helps me catch when something sounds like not my voice at all or just like a really weird clunky thing of saying or like a bullshit caveat that I've that like writer brain put in, right? Or pre presensorious brain put in. I write very sporadically. I don't really have a schedule. I've tried many times to get a sense of what time of day I write best at, and I've done many experiments, and it does not really work like that for me. I get I get consistently throughout the day periods where I can write or burst of inspiration, but I've never been able to like pen it down to a time except when I worked at Vice and like they were like chop chop motherfucker, file that shit, you know. <laughs> But then again, you know, when I was doing that advice, I was writing uh, four times a week, five times a week, and I'm not putting out, I haven't really published uh, consistently in a long time. Um, But I'm hoping to like try and reimpose that sort of rigor on myself uh, in the new year, Uh, a sort of like fake job deadline-esque thing approach to writing. Um, I also like to write 
after I've read something really nice, um, or as I'm reading it, um, lines that really hit. Um, and I think of it as different from the note-taking process when you read something, right? Lines that really hit, immediate reactions. Um, and then you go back and you take notes more so on like the idea, the actual text. But like I could read an article, like maybe I might read an article, like for example, with Emily's piece. Uh, when we were reading it, a lot of the writing I immediately had was like weird ideas that were like, oh, this would like a character that might have come out of it, right? Or like a question about, oh, is this like, you know, I wonder if there's a, an, a connection between this idea and this something I've heard someone else say. And then the notes on the actual thing itself will be like, interesting argument, you know, think about this, research this, follow up that. Do I agree with this? I agree with that. I think this, you know, maybe I don't agree with this point. Um, so yeah, I fa- I say I like uh, I feel like my general method is um, unstructured structure. You know, I love that. Uh, I love that sort of shit all the time, and it helps me out the most because I feel like I kind of wither if I'm in a structure. Even though I had did, you know, most of my lines work within a structure, but it was like. Was only we had we negotiated a, a, the relaxing of that structure, and I think that's where I thrived. What about you guys? Very, in, very interesting. I will, I, I will answer. And then there is a a, specific, a question, a follow up that is specifically for for Jeremy, um, for for his uh, his creative output. But um, this is yet another example of how. Uh, <laughs> One of the, one of the ways that uh, the one of the reasons why TMK works so well um, is because it is it is so dialectic. Uh, we are a, a relationship that contains its opposing tendencies, its opposite, mm-hmm. its contradictions. Um, mm-hmm. Where <laughs> the three of us, but uh, especially I think. Jeremy and Ed are far more similar, um, and then I am the opposite <laughs> of Jeremy and Ed. And so it is through the the contradictions that we synthesize into something far more beautiful um, and greater. But uh, uh, I I uh, do not I have purged my writing of all romanticism um, <laughs> whatsoever. It is pure structure, uh, mm-hmm. and it is um, it is uh, I treat writing. Uh, like, like I'm, uh, uh, laying bricks, you know, like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm working, you know, I'm, 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 I'm in the, I'm, I'm, I'm building a wall. I'm brick laying. Um, and every day I go and it, when I'm writing something, an article, an essay, a book chapter, for, you know, a chapter for books, whatever. Um, every day I go and I, I lay, I lay the next few bricks um, in the wall that I'm building. Uh, And then I do that and then I clock out. And then the next day I go and lay the next bricks (laughs) in the wall. And I, I don't use like Scrivener or calmly or anything like that. I wrote my first book and everything I wrote before that, including my dissertation uh, in Microsoft word. (laughs) Um, And, and then I wrote my second book, um, which is coming out this year, uh, and, and everything over and everything I've written over the last few years, articles and essays and stuff, uh, in Google Docs. <laughs> um, and I just that that is, I, and I when I write, I start at the top and I I go to the bottom uh, of the thing that I'm writing. 
<laughs> and I know it's like it's completely not replicable because it only works because of my like specific idiosyncratic like cocktail of dispositions and neurodivergences. Um, I also am really bad at taking notes. I don't take notes uh, of things that I read. I read them. I highlight. Uh, in them, and then that's it. And then when I want to go back to reference them for something I'm writing, then I go back and look at it, uh, look at the thing again. I might pull out some excerpts um, that of like relevant passages that get me thinking about something, or that I want to work into the the piece in some way. And then I put those excerpts in a different document, all collected together, so I can see them all at you know much more easily. So excerpts from various different articles and books and stuff. And then that's it. Those are my notes <laughs> that I take uh, or that I use while I while I'm writing. Um, but that's only because I'm able to just keep think like. I remember most of the things that I read, and if I don't remember them exactly, I remember the gist of it and where it was. And then I just have a really good system for uh, like reference, like finding things, you know, so a naming convention for files such that I'm easily able to find the things that I want. Because, you know, usually I can't remember something about the title or the author. Um, of the piece and then I go and find the thing and like oh that's the thing I was thinking of I, I it's it, it is completely like unreplicable by other people which makes it really difficult for me to give like writing advice because I'm like you know my writing advice uh you know start at the top and every day <laughs> way a little bit closer to the bottom um <laughs> a lot of stuff and highlight the stuff like like interesting things in the stuff you read but don't take notes uh and then <laughs> if you are ready to write just remember the things that you read and then write about right. <laughs> <laughs> i've been thinking of the, you know, that method i've been thinking of something similar for some of the features i've been trying to work on where like just frankly i need to be laying bricks because i'm not going to find a moment where i'm like aha and now the 5000 words will flow out of me that's not how they work that's never how it's worked really that was maybe the most like revelatory thing for me was like starting to think of writing not as it is a creative enterprise but not thinking of it as a creative enterprise such that it's like the eureka moment must hit and then like a moment of mania uh you know brilliance flows out of me but instead thinking about it as laying bricks um and you clock in and you clock out and sometimes it takes me a long time to warm up to laying that first brick um, and then I'll like procrastinate or do email or do or something like that for the first few hours of the day until I feel warmed up enough, you know, I'm limber enough to start laying the brick. But then once I start laying the brick, I get into the process. Uh, and then like, you know, and I, I set myself a 500 word limit a day. It's like if I'm writing some, if I'm actively writing something, I want to write 500 words a day in that thing I'm writing. Anything after that is bonus. Um, and then it's like, that's doable. And also, but it's like 500 words a day starts adding up really fucking quickly. Like that's 2,500 words a week. That's 5,000 words every two weeks. That's 10,000 words a month. You know, like it starts adding up a lot. And it's like why I was able to write my book and 
where like for my first and second book, I wrote a chapter a month because the chapters were about 8,000 words. So that gave me some leeway there for days when I couldn't get any writing done because other stuff took precedent or, or distracted me or whatever. Um, and then I was like able to write that 8,000 words a month for, you know, eight months in a row because I was laying bricks, you know. Jason, you sound like a hustle mindset influencer. Uh, I mean, <laughs> put back five hundred dollars of every paycheck. In some ways, I mean the, the look the the methods or the goals that they lay out are not always wrong, but the way but the <laughs> way that they do it and the reasons why they do it are psychotic. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, <laughs> um, but but it's not wrong to like the like the slow and steady. Um, where the tortoise wins the race, like it's not wrong, uh, and it also prevents me from feeling um, as burnt out or exhausted mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. doing stuff because I'm not doing it in a in a hectic, frenzied mania that then completely drains me of all my energy, and I have to go into like cryo sleep for for a month or something. I'm just like, no, I just get stuff done. I also don't talk a lot about stuff I'm doing while I'm doing it because I don't want to give myself the psychological gratification of having already done it by telling people yeah. I'm doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah, with, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Until I've actually done it. So, like, I didn't talk about my book very much at all to people. I just wrote it. And then once it was done, I was like, oh, I've been working on this thing. Oh, and it's done. <laughs> you know? Wait, Ed, let me ask you this then, since you, you seem like you're probably in the same boat as I am, where you kind of wait for that, like, moment of peak inspiration to hit you. And you all of a sudden just, like, become prolific with your output. Um, I think the thing about that type of style, I mean, I, I'm not a writer, I journal. And in case you're wondering what, what my favorite thing uses to write, it's a Pilot G2 ink pen number 10, because I write really delicately. When I was a kid, I used to write lines because I would get in trouble. And there was literally no other form of punishment that worked on me except for writing lines. So I have immaculate handwriting and... I write with a very specific utensil and I don't use hardly anything else to write because of that. You know, to piggyback the question you asked earlier, Jason, about how I compose the episodes, sometimes episodes are late because I have to fucking do something for the episode. I get this, this hit of inspiration and sometimes I hit walls and not being able to like complete it the way I want to. And there have been times where it's happened where I've had an idea of something for an episode and just didn't have the time or the ability to be able to do it and had to like, you know, pull an instrumental or something like that, like from way back in the stock of music that I have, you know, there's been times I've just really wanted to like, you know, compose a piano cover of something, but just can't find the time to do it because you know, I'm not a piano player. I taught myself how to play piano specifically for this podcast. Actually, I didn't do it as a hobby or something that I wanted to do. I was just like, you know what? I enjoy putting musical piano interludes and things, and I should probably learn how to play this shit then. So I did, you know, there are times where we go into episodes knowing what the episode is going to be about. So I have an idea of what, what type of music I want to do. Like a perfect example, when we did our, uh, the fall of the FTX episode, the no FTX episode, we already had the idea of the running joke that we were going to talk about, you know, the, the name of the episode. And so of course, everything I did was related to the band, no effects, including the piano arrangement at the end of the episode that, I mean that I had a week 
it's heads up. So I was able to really do that. Sometimes I just listen to episodes. And I'm like, oh, that would sound good with this. Oh, that sounds great with this. Or Jathan or Ed just mentioned this artist or this band. So maybe you should work that in somehow. Sometimes that makes it easy. Sometimes when like the, uh, the Soren Mal, um, mute compulsion episodes, usually the intro or the outro of the episode has something to do with the topic that's being discussed. Like the first, I think the first part of the book was about power. So there was a, you know, a sample of the snaps power, you know, that was utilized at the beginning of the episode. And then some of the episodes we've been talking about more recently, or you guys have been talking about more more recently about control. So that's been kind of worked in as well too. So every episode, it may not seem like it, but there's a reason why the music that I used was in it. And if it's something familiar, if it's something that you can like, I think I know what that is, you know, it's not going to be original. Uh, and, but a lot of times it's going to be stuff that I've already created. So if you don't recognize it as like, you know, if you try to Shazam it and you can't find it, it's probably because I made it. And I am in the process of having someone help me catalog all the music I've done along with doing transcripts. So hopefully by the middle of the year, we'll have at least, uh, the most recent 100 episodes transcribed. That's something that we've been working on behind the scenes. Hell yeah. Yeah. And that would be great. I mean, like, I know I I keep, I see it on the discord all the time that people uh, absolutely love the, the music and the scoring and the composition and the structuring of the, of the episodes, like at a production level, um, like the structuring of interludes and stuff like that. So it, it, it definitely adds a ton to, um, to the episodes. And like, if it means that, you know, an episode's late every so often because you get some, some composers block, but you really want to do something, you know, for the episode, then, you know, small price to pay, right. Um, to, to make something that really stands out, uh, better. But yeah, I don't know. I, I like talking about, um, the, the, like at a meta level, like the processes of, of writing. Although again, like, uh, my, my, like, I, I think it also just shows that like you have to find a method uh, that works for you, like a method, a structure and implement tools, whatever it is that works for you. Um, while also like not getting caught up in the romanticism of it. Like at the end of the day, like there has to be an element of bricklaying, um, to it but like bricklaying doesn't just just with any trade it doesn't have to be something that's done sloppily uh or done um you know in a way that's just uh rote and mundane right it can be done with with artistry uh and skill and craft um with artisanship right uh be be an artisan with your writing even if that writing is is done you know, in the way of bricklaying rather than the way of, uh, you know, a, a masterpiece flows out of you. Um, but let's, let's finish on um, the bird that flies at midnight's trifecta of questions um, here where they also ask, what is a hobby that has lost joy in the recent past? I mean, we've started the episode talking about our hobbies of playing video games, but so what is a hobby that has lost joy in the recent past? Maybe due to TMK enemy reasons, maybe for other reasons. Um, I think that's a really interesting question. And I don't know, like, uh, do you guys have something that has lost joy um, for some reason in the recent past? I don't listen to podcasts anymore. Is that because of TMK? I don't listen to any podcasts anymore. I used to listen to a handful of podcasts. I don't listen to them anymore. I honestly, and it's 
nothing against you guys. I'm not going to name any names because I don't like shaming anybody. But some of y'all really need people to help you out with your audio. I know we had nothing, no room to talk early on in our TMK career. But now that I, I polished this turd to to what it is <laughs> in an audio sense, I guess I just have higher standards for the stuff I want to stick in my ears and listen to. I mean, I do feel that because I do listen to podcasts a fucking lot. Um, I still like po- I, podcast. <laughs> I'm a sicko. I listen to podcasts while I play video games. Um, oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, stimming up, baby. <laughs> oh, I am stimming all like like in full stim. Uh, and and um, so it means I go through a lot of podcasts. But uh, but I, I do find myself unable to stand um, when the audio quality is like exceptionally poor in an episode of something. And I will sometimes skip um, episodes because of that. Mm. Yeah. You know me, it's like, I listen to podcasts in birth. I really like, um, you know, autumn's really my main audio content. I really like listening to longer reads through uh, on audio. Uh, and, um, I don't know what's a, I think, um, maybe playing piano. I think piano's kind of lost joy for me for the time being. And maybe that's partly because I've been working on the saxophone, but I haven't really picked it up in a while. I'm trying to think of something like that's something else, like a hobby. It's more so. Reading the news is something oh, that yeah. I don't do too much anymore. <laughs> yeah. Because I feel like oh, I'm yeah. just going to, just from looking at our Discord and the topics that we talk about, like I don't even need to look news articles up anymore because I already know that anything that I'm wanting to check out, we're probably going to talk about or somebody in the discord has already posted. And honestly, there's so much shit in the world right now that I just stay the fuck away from a lot of news sources. And I used to be a news junkie. I like, I like information. Jason is probably in the same way. We're like, I'm constantly, I'm a sponge. I'm trying to soak up as much shit as I possibly can but I'm being very, very specific about what I soak up now and not just everything. Yeah. I mean, I think on that as well, it's not so much a hobby, but like specific like content uh, has lost joy for me because I'm now unable to separate the author from the product of stuff. So there's a lot of stuff where like, you know, authors have, uh, comp- like off, like either it's the authors or the audiences of, of stuff are um, uh, you know awful or horrendous or uh, otherwise just annoying, and so it makes me not able to enjoy the thing. Um, so you know, like an o- like an obvious one, and I mean, like part of this is also just like like move like growing past it, but you know, uh, like something like Harry Potter, right? Like you know, it's like. Well, like no matter how intri- like how much I was into those books when I was a kid, because everyone at my age was into those books um, as a as a kid. It's like now I'm like that, like no, awful, horrendous, right? Or actually, uh, another thing is like comic books and superheroes. Like I read comic books a lot when I was a kid. Like I was super big, especially into DC comics. Um, you know, like that was my, like, I was way more into that over Marvel, um, as a kid would read, you know, I had a, I had a box at my local comic book store and when I was in high school, so I would go there every week and pick up my comics. Right. And like, uh, and, and, you know, read 
uh, gra- you know, the graphic novels when I was getting into it, like the big collections of series and stuff. And like, you know, a lot of that has lost joy for me in part because like just also growing up becoming a lot more political minded as well and like recognizing the like the fascist politics of like Batman and stuff like that. And I'm just like, well, I can't really enjoy this to the same level now. But also because it I think it also speaks to what we were talking about with video games and like its analogousness with um the movie uh you know studio system is um how much these things have become so fucking low rent, low grade, low quality schlock uh, that is like ubiquitous in, in culture now at its most fucking like worst level. Um, and so it's like completely purged all joy and happiness out of those things because of that. I, I will add to that too in the same aspect. I used to love sports. Like I was a big, 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 soccer fan or i'm or for most of the world football fan i can't even stand watching this shit anymore and just you know i just feel oversaturated by all the ads i feel oversaturated by i don't know watching a bunch of disgustingly wealthy people pay, play a child's game all the sports betting all that. of the the corruption well, that, is, that is always <laughs> yeah that's always like just kind of ruined them the corruption yeah it's just you know I mean, I hate to, back in my day, sports, they played these games for fun. But in reality, like, it's always been like this. It just takes some time to realize it. All right, let's grab one more and then we can wrap it up for the free episode. There's so there's a, t- a ton more for us to get into. So we will um, do a part two in the uh, in the premium feed over on Patreon. But I think this is a great one to end out on. Um, Eli asks in the Discord, any advice for getting started in the critical tech journalism scene? I studied computer science plus science and technology studies, and now I'm based in San Francisco and want to examine some of the AI frenzy I see happening in local tech circles here. I'd love to eventually do something like Ed or Brian Merchant, but I'm not sure where to begin as a new grad. Curious if you guys have thoughts on that and or any general takes on the future of tech journalism and whose work you find most exciting, in addition to the great people you bring on the show. Ed, I'll throw it over to you as our tech journalist here. Um, Yeah, like any advice for getting started in critical tech journalism? Yeah, no, um, I would not be in the industry without like having worked at motherboard um and it's because i worked at motherboard for so long that i feel like i'm able to still do it via freelancing because i was able to do a lot of work there connected with a lot of editors over the years and now i I feel comfortable about pitching or getting commissioned from these places but if i were starting now i don't really know you know because so many of the doors are so many of the publications are gone so many of the openings that are present are for places that like kind of already filter out critical voices, right? You know, I can't uh, really tell you how many t- times I feel like my time has been wasted with like 
some larger legacy media publication uh, hounding me, you know, to try to apply to a job thing. Um, and then learning pretty quick, quickly, they're not really interested in uh, my critical voice, which is like, okay, so why was I being annoyed by you guys in the first place? But um, I think that there, you know, there are still some jobs in tech journalism, but they are at publications uh, that are, you know, doing great investigative work, but not also like, it depends on like what kind of work you want to do, you know, like, um, you know, if we, you know, for like really the shining stars in my head are the worker owned ones, right? 404 and discourse or, you know, worker owned media ones is, uh, as, as two examples. Um, and then you have, you know, tech at places like fortune or Forbes, or Business Insider, or um, you know, BuzzFeed's Dead. Um, you have the you know legacy media teams, um, but you know with like some of the internet only publications, you also have to deal with like reports of pretty horrendous working conditions. I think Business Insider, for one example, you know has this a uh, pretty esoteric point system that uh, reporters are expected to adhere to, you know, it has to do with subscriptions you can get, views you can get, types of people that share your articles, um, and so on and so forth. Um, You also have to deal with the perennial threat of layoffs. I mean, so all of this is like a reason why I've decided I'm not going to try to re-enter the industry. I mean, in the sense that I'll I'll still do freelancing, of course. But the thing I'm more interested in doing is like, you know, I have have this safe gig at, you know, logic, and that's good. Um, Commissioning stuff. And then trying to do fellowships to do my research, to do the research. Like, there are plenty of fellowships that are aimed at writers, especially early career writers, that you can do and cycle through, I think, my senses without actually do working in the newsroom. Um, but still being able to do the sort of work you might want to do at a newsroom. Although, you know, you'll just have to then find a sort of, you know, the editorial and the editing of your own work is harder. You don't have writing samples as well. And that might be harder to get in the door, but it feels to me like a lot of the traditional tracks are dead. A lot of the places and people I know work at places that are, and they're doing great work there despite the place, you know? Um, and a lot of, uh, the best, you know, right. Are the, some of the best like places that might be most stable are places that are kind of like locked off to anyone who's not already coming out of early career, um, or in the mid career point of their journalism stints. So, I mean, there's that, you know, and then it's also like, like I was saying, we kind of, what kind of writing you want to do, right. You know, because there's a wide range and a lot of it, in one way or another, requires like extensive sourcing. That also requires some sort of like peddling for ask access. You know, this reported opinion, like what I was doing for a while. There's just straight commentary. Uh, there's um, you know uh, stenography for the elites. Um, so there's a there's a huge range of them and options. But I think you know, like you're saying, if you're listening to this, you're a critical you're a critical tech person, right? Um, so I don't know. I feel like your best avenue or the one I would recommend to people who are interested in critical tech is coming at it from a side, maybe figuring out some place that they can do no strings attached research and writing. Right. You know, I think over time I've come especially more and more to, I've been, and especially cause I've been revisiting uh, 
Morris of essay a lot and Chomsky's work also on like what the point of public intellectuals are and Dwight McDonald's essay on this where, you know, thinking a lot about what is the point of tech critics and tech journalism and how much can actually be done, you know, um, you know, what does the structure of tech media allow for the sort of work that we want to see happen? Um, to how long should you stay in it? What kind of work should you do in it? What kind of meta commentary does it require? Um, and these are all questions that I feel like have different answers than like what I w- would have thought three years ago, but maybe have always had the same answers. And I'm just like, now I feel like at a point where I can understand it, which is all to say, it's like, it's not dark and dreary and hopeless. There's still avenues to do it. And there are lots of people who are still doing great work at rooms that might suck because of labor conditions or because of um, a general uh, tent- tilt of the uh, outlet that they work at. But work done despite it, you know, and, and you have to, and I think that that's like one of the limiting and discouraging factors, you know, like me personally, I don't know if I could recommend for someone to go into the space, but I do think that we need people who think critically about tech to kind of like drown out, you know, the fact that there's just so much nonsense, right? I mean, like, like you bring up Brian Merchant, Brian Merchant's is almost certainly is I think is actually the only Luddite, um, you know, tech columnist, the whole fucking country, <laughs> probably the whole world, you know, uh, um, or no, I, I have, I have a, I have a column at Logic, so it's it's us, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but it's a small club, uh, and I think that. You know, he does great work there. And, you know, LA Times has had great tech journalists that have been there and then gone off, right? Um, Johanna Bohanian, I think that's her name is, you know, one of my, has been like one of my favorite uh, tech reporters over the years. Is over at The Guardian now doing great work. The Guardian also has, you know, uh, has had great writers and editors over time and to this day, as LA Times does, right? So it's hard. I feel like it's like, I feel like you're better off just like following people and figuring out why they go to a place and then looking at the team from that place than like adhering to any publication, you know, because a lot of the writers move for reasons that they might be sensitive to like editorial bent of the place or the labor conditions and will move to a place that's, you know, not going to be worse, hopefully, than where they left. Um, and so I think you'd, you're better off, you know, not in a sort of cult of personality sense, but because um, they're moving for a reason to like follow writers, look at the work they do when they get to a new place and who's doing work with them at a new place. And also just reaching out, you know, especially if you follow a critical tech journalist, I don't like, you know, me, I'm personally, I me, I'm personally bad responding to people who reach out to me. Um you know, strangers and friends. <laughs> but I was gonna say um, it's not because you're you're like brushing <laughs> them off. It's just because you're bad at, at yeah. <laughs> I was on an email thread where um I got invited to a talk and they had to re they had to reroute the message through like a friend of mine and and they were like, Oh, um yeah, Ed's hard to get a hold of. He's a private person. I was like, Am I a private person? Like uh, maybe I'm like just a non responsive person. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um but um, all that to say, you can reach out to them and they will respond. You know, it's a pretty small, everyone, we are all here and happy to, you know, help out people 
we will share similar beliefs and values because it's in short supply. Or maybe it's not in short supply, but it's hard to you know get in through those fucking doors, right? Because the industry is not meritocratic. It's not meritocratic, right? Uh, it's incredibly insular. It's very, you know, there's a social network at play. There are also, also concerns about like where you live, you know, what kind of writing you do and so on and so forth that make it almost impossible to break in except out of like luck and, um, and momentum, you know? Um, and I think of that and I think that's like a, just like a hard rule. Like I like to think that I would have been fine doing it any other time, but I think I'm lucky in doing it, right? And doing it at like a high clip at motherboard also, and a lot of converge, converging factors made it. So it was like very hard to just kind of like write off the writing. It's like, oh, you know, angry, black, uh, Luddite, um, commie, bullshit, you know? Um, <laughs> um, and I think that, that you have to work against there, there's this, there's this a uh, really great quote by Chomsky where he talks about uh, argument by Chomsky where he talks about you know concision, and he talks about how you know when you're making a claim, what power means when you make a claim, you don't really have to provide evidence for it. You just say it. You know, Israel's defending itself from uh, Palestinian militants who are hiding around every corner, and they have tunnels underneath hospitals that they're using as command centers. Right? You can just say that. Um, everyone else has to provide a mountain of evidence. And so concision ends up getting trotted around as a sort of defense that undermines your ability to provide those mountains of evidence, right? And concision comes in multiple forms, editorial voice, uh, you know, uh, how hard you hit, you know, the frame of the story. And so these are all things to take into account and consider as you're thinking about doing tech journalism. I think you should... I, I can't full I can't you know full heartedly endorse it because I feel like the the industry is dead or dying. But I do think there are paths to do it. You know, finding editorial fellowships, entry pro way programs, doing it on the side or doing the writing on the side, uh, and building up an audience and readership that way. Doing it reliably and you know with consistency as well, and then leveraging that into you know maybe closer and closer orbit into the industry itself or figuring out like a way to make a you know to have a living and do the writing as well if that is, i hope that answer is helpful yeah i mean i think it's the the realities right there's just such there's so much precarity and insecurity uh built into journalism and you know that's like that's not new um but it is certainly the case. It, it is just certainly a defining feature of it now, right? Like you were talking about the layoffs. It's just like the rolling layoffs of I, I you know, can't count the number of times I see on Twitter like some journalist who's doing you know amazing work, um, and then announcing being like, oh, I've been you know I've been laid off from Wired or I've been laid off from uh, Gizmodo or, but you know, or, or oops, Buzzfeed has shut its doors. Right. Like, so now we're all out of job. Like the number of people that you see that happen to, it's like, it's not a, um, it's not because the quality of their work is low. Right. It, it, it's, it's just mm -hmm. the economics of the, of journalism as an industry just has this like built into it now. And it really does demand a lot of, um, 
your career is your hobby and your hobby is your career, right? Like, you know, you, you, you get into journalism because, you know, a lot of people get into journalism because they, they find it intrinsically valuable and interesting and they want to, you know, devote their time. You know, it's a vocation. It's a calling for some people or whatever. Right. And the industries have a really, you know, across the board have a really good, um, ability to take advantage of that, right? Take advantage of people by framing these professions, these careers as vocations, as callings, as things that you would be doing because uh, for free, if you could, because you find it intrinsically useful or valuable. And so, mm-hmm. hey, you might as well do it for free, you know, that for exposure, right? Whatever it is, or for $100 here and there. Um, it's really, yeah, I mean, I think like, it, it's it, but it is valuable and it is necessary. Mm-hmm. But at the same mm-hmm. time, like I think, like getting into it, one does have to grapple with the fact that like there is just so much insecurity and precarity built into into the industry. Um, it's like really, you know, uh, like there are people who have these like kind of sinecure jobs for life or have like long careers at one at one place but i think that's exceedingly rare and so much of that at least my my sense from the outside um is that like also so much of that is like nepotism and prestige networks right like are you coming from the right um did you go to the right schools do you know the right people are you part of the right family or lineage or whatever and then like that's going to get you a job at the New York Times and the news desk straight out of Columbia Journalism School or whatever, you know, like, so there's no meritocracy to it. Um, But, but also to what you were saying, Ed, like we do like there, like the people I know or the people I I, I see who like don't come, who don't have that, that privilege uh, and are like really, you know, successful, um, or at least well-known uh, are people who also just are like relentlessly um, writing and freelancing and publishing or, you know, trying to, uh, you know, publish freelance pieces while also writing a Substack or like claiming a particular beat as their own beat and then getting a job at like a, a you know, and uh, like a, a content mill or a blog or, you know, something like the daily beast or whatever. Right. And then just like claiming that beat and then just becoming well known as the person who writes that beat, who knows that area more than everybody else. And then from there, you know, maybe you get hired up the chain to, uh, to a bigger legacy newspaper with more job security. Right. Like there, there, it, it's just like, I don't think there's uh, the only surefire way is to uh, have some kind of like privilege behind you from the beginning. Right. Whether you're like part of a journalistic lineage, you're, you have the right social capital or you just have a wealthy family that can kind of bankroll your rent and food and give you a stipend to live on while you uh, freelance for free. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you also have to remember a lot of the non, if you don't go the fellowship route and you go like, or if you don't go an academic or, you know, nonprofit fellowship route and you go journalism fellowship route, I mean, the rates that they pay should be illegal, you know, like, 
made like nine, like a thousand dollars for a summer were some of the early career rates that a lot of my friends, uh, you know, were getting, um, you know, maybe a few hundred dollars a month or maybe no payment at all, you know, and I'm sure, you know, to an extent rates have improved since, but it's like, you're not getting paid the livable wage. Um, you know, so why do that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why do that? <laughs> Goodest place of any to leave off part one of the of the the TMK Q and A. Um, some a lot more questions and and answers to come in the premium feed, which you can find at patreon.com slash this machine kills for that and many, 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 many more episodes, both a backlog and more to come in the new year. Um, so subscribe there. Jump on uh, the Discord. Um, for as well, if you want to uh, get potentially get your question answered in a future Q and A episode, I would like to do more of these as we go on. They're very fun, and there's just some there's more questions than we can get to even in a part two. Um, uh, also, because we have a tendency to go really long uh, when we when we talk. Um, but all right, well, find us there, and until next time. Later. Adios. Adios.